0: Good morning. We're starting a new series today called Blessed. Blessed out of Acts 20 verse 35 as the famous passage where the Apostle Paul writes, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I think I saw that in a Lexus commercial recently, right? Isn't that what it's talking about, right? Like standing with my perfect family in front of my perfect house with this perfect snowfall morning with a perfect red bow on top of the new perfect Lexus that I just gave my wife and I realize it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that what this verse is talking about? Like the Christmas season and commercialism. Yeah, no? Did I miss that? Did I get that? Boy, it's what it's talking about a lot, but... That's not what this verse is talking about. We know that we're blessed, right? I mean, sure, we have problems, we have struggles, but I mean, look around you. We have food, we have clothing, we have transportation, we have loved ones. Nobody swung a football helmet at us recently. Like our lives, our lives are pretty good, aren't they? I mean, we are blessed. And and if we admit here that we are blessed, that every good and perfect gift is from the Father above, that God has given us so much, then don't we also need to lean into the words of Jesus when He said in Luke 12: 48, "For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required." See, we all remember the second half of Acts 20:35. It's better to give than receive. What I want to focus on today is the first half of Acts 20:35 where the apostle Paul says I have shown you in every way by laboring like this I've demonstrated for you with my work I've shown you in every possible way that you what must support the weak I have to be honest with you as I was preparing for this study I asked the question well who are the weak who's the Lord talking about here in Scripture? And so I started going through all of the Scriptures that I could find, and you received outlines when you came in. And usually on my outlines, just to help you out so that you're not trying to write verses down, I always put the verses at the bottom that I'm going to use in the Scripture. And if you turn your outline over, you'll see usually I've got like 12, maybe 15 verses. I realized very, very quickly that something was wrong here. I sat in my office and I realized, I started praying. I was like, Lord, you have so much to say in the scriptures about supporting the weak, the poor, those who are oppressed, those who can't support themselves. And I realized that I, like so many people, kind of look at some of the good deeds that I do in the charitable things and areas where I'm generous and that I'm just content with that. But when I looked at the weight of scripture, I think I have like close to 50, maybe a little bit more than 50 scriptures there. And we're not even scratching the surface. I had to stop or there wouldn't have been a study. I would have just kept going on and on and on with that. I sat in my office and I realized like, I am not fulfilling the law of Christ. I had a, one of my teachers at Bible college said very early on, when what you believe, when your doctrine, when your theology, when your actions, because your actions reflect what you believe. He says, when, you're, when your theology, when you bump up to something in scripture that doesn't work with your theology, you need to change your theology. And I sat in my office and I said, Lord, I, I feel like I need to repent I see very clearly that I do not give this the weight that I'm supposed to give it in my life. That there is an inequity in what I've received versus what I give. But I got to be honest, Lord, I don't even know what I'm supposed to repent from. I really don't know. Where do you even start with something like this? And so let's start at the beginning, Lord. Lord. I pray that in your firm and gentle way, you would speak to us today. That where we lack all of the answers, we know we do not lack your Holy Spirit who leads us and who guides us into all truth. We pray, God, that we wouldn't just see behavioral patterns, but that we would see your heart and that we would get in line with you. That if there are places where we are out of alignment, that we would fix that. And that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And so the obvious question becomes... Who are the weak? Zechariah 7 verses 10 through 11 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The words of God himself. He says, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. The widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, or the poor. You see this, especially in the Old Testament, is a theme that goes throughout. In fact, pastors in the past have called it the quartet of the vulnerable. Let me say that to you again. The quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the fatherless, the alien, or immigrant, and the poor. In those days, in that society, people that comprised these four groups would have had no social power. They lived at a level where they would have been only days from starvation if there was any famine, invasion, sickness, oppression, or social unrest. They would have been powerless to change their own situations within the law. God, knowing this, instructed his people to care for them. In Deuteronomy, he says, there should be no poor among you because of their obedience to the Lord. Today, this group would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and many single parents and elderly people, the poor. Please pay attention to what the Lord says here administer true justice. We'll talk more on that in a minute, but look at what he says with it. Show compassion and mercy to one another. There is a danger here that we may want to justify our lack of action, which is really a lack of obedience, by asking the question, well, how did they get into that situation before we offer assistance? After all, we're called to be good stewards. We don't want to enable But are we missing the heart and command of God in that? Don't they say administer justice out of mercy and compassion? What's the driving purpose behind it? It's the mercy and compassion. He leads with justice, compassion, and mercy. Each of these people groups in the day that God was talking were literally days away from starvation. If any number, one of these things went wrong. The difference between the quartet of the vulnerable And the rest of society is that they had nothing to fall back on. They don't have the family resources. They don't have the support. They don't have an advocate, legal or otherwise. And there are no quick means to advance their cause or to change their own situation. Within their own selves, there's only so much they can do. It doesn't say anything here about work ethic. It talks about a situation that people find themselves in. Hence the name Vulnerable. What God is saying here is this is not a liberal or a conservative issue. It isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. It is an obedience to God issue. So who are the weak? The quartet of the vulnerable. Widows. Single moms. The fatherless. Foreigners. And the poor. So if that's who the weak are that we're supposed to support, or to support, what does God require when he says, support the weak? Well, what does that mean? One of my favorite verses in scripture is Micah 6, eight. It says, he has shown you. And I love this because God never asked me to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. It doesn't say he's told you, oh man. It says he has shown you, oh man. He has shown you, oh man. So what does God require? He has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, this is what God requires. This is not a suggestion. This is a requirement. If I align myself with Jesus, if I say I am a Christian, I am bought with the blood of Jesus, I've been redeemed from my sins, and I am here to serve the Lord, then this is not an option, and it's not something that I get to eventually. What does the Lord require of you? There's accountability with this. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That word justly, and this is on your outlines, that word justly is mishpat, mishpat in the whole in the Hebrew. I doubt that I'm saying that correctly, but I'm calling it mishpat. This word for justice, this word mishpot, do justly, do justice, it puts the emphasis on action. Actual deeds, physical things that you're doing. The word mishpat talks about actions. In Leviticus 24, God warns Israel to have the same mishpat or rule of law for the foreigner as for the native. Treat them the same regardless of their original home, regardless of their cultural differences, regardless of their skin tone, regardless of their accent, regardless of their language, The law that you are to govern them by is to treat them equally, no matter what, across the board. Aren't we God's chosen people? Yup, and you're supposed to treat everybody absolutely the same, straight across the board. This is important because it's a word that deals with action. It means acquitting or punishing every person based on the merits of the case, not race or social status or wealth. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. The first place I bumped into this, and I was young and pretty naive. But it was in the 90s, because now I'm old and less naive. But you remember the O.J. Simpson case? anybody who's like 40 or older is like nodding and laughing right now. Like, man, they interrupted like the NBA finals to show the white Bronco driving. And, you know, there was this, it was just this circus of a case. But I remember it was such a big deal that they let us out of class. And I remember going down to Mrs. Bottery. She was a biology teacher. I didn't even have her as a teacher, but I always hung out in her room. Um, teachers love your students. It makes a difference. Even if they're not your students, it makes a difference. But I went to Mrs. Bottery's class and, and I remember, watching watching the verdict and i remember when the verdict came in not guilty y'all who were there do you remember how this worked you had one group in the country that was losing their minds because how could there be this miscarriage of justice and you had another group in the country who was losing their minds because they finally felt that there was exposure to what had been going on all along that there are miscarriages of justice and I'm not here to speak on that but do you remember the riots and Rodney King and can't we all just get along do you remember what was going on in those times and there were people who finally felt heard and now California juries like it's a it's a punchline if you're wealthy or powerful you can do whatever you want but if you're not mishpot the same justice no matter Influence or wealth or social status, mishpat, to do justly. What does God require of you to do justly? But it means that word mishpat, it means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. And this is so important. It also means to give people their rights. Doesn't this nation stand on the fact that we've all been given certain inalienable rights? But don't we pick and choose which ones are most important at the time and to who it's most important for? Mishpat. Defend them. Give the rights that belong them. Proverbs 31:9, God says, defend the rights of the poor and needy. It means giving people what they are due. Not just punishment, but protection. It means protecting the quartet of the vulnerable. And this is worldwide. This is not just an American issue. This is worldwide. It means protecting the quartet of the vulnerable against corruption in government, in social systems, and in enforcement of the law. It means landlords who pay off inspectors so that they can keep people oppressed. That's wrong. God says, don't do this. This is what I require of you. Mishpat means government officials who accept kickbacks and alter decisions because they want to stay in power rather than doing what the power affords them to do. It means law enforcement without accountability, allowing a miscarriage of judgment. God's requirement for his people was the same then as it is now. Mishpat, to do justly, but he combines it to do justly and to love mercy. The word is chesed. I guarantee I'm saying it wrong. The word is chesed. This word for mercy puts the emphasis on attitude or motive. So mishpat deals with action, but chesed deals with attitude, the way that I think about things. In Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, Mishpat, to love mercy, Chesed, and to walk humbly with your God. Therefore, if we are going to walk with God, which is what we're supposed to do, right? Wasn't that way back in the garden that Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the cool of the morning? Didn't Jesus take the name Emmanuel, which meant God with us? Don't we walk with God? Didn't he say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Don't we love the fact that we get to come to a great and merciful God who we get to walk with? If we want to walk humbly with our God, then what he requires of us is that we must do justice out of merciful love. Do you hear that? If I'm going to walk with God, which is a right that Jesus has bought for me, I have to do justice out of merciful love. Why help the weak? Why is it so important to God? It's important to understand it's because we are all God's image bearers. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, our being Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He wasn't talking with a bunch of angels. According to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Hear this, because we are God's image bearers, we are different from the rest of creation. We have dignity, we have responsibility, and we have equality with one another. The Bible teaches that the sacredness of God has, in some ways, been imparted to humanity so that every human life is sacred. Every human being has dignity. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. He says this in The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. When we deal with people, no matter who those people are, you, me, your lawyer, the homeless guy on the corner of 104 and Lake, a celebrity, or the kid ringing out your groceries, we're dealing with someone made in the likeness of God, and we need to treat them like it. No one person holds more value than another in God's eyes. God made this principle on humanity clear in both Genesis and James. When he talks about murder, he says in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, for your lifeblood, I shall surely demand an accounting. He says, if you shed blood, I'm going to demand that your blood be shed. But he gives the why. He says, for in his own image, God has made man. It's because an assault on man is an assault on God, on the image of God. In James, he takes it one step further. He talks about verbal abuse. It says in James 3, 8, and 9, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the image of God. In both places, the reasoning was because mankind was made in God's image. When I'm dealing with people, no matter their race, creed, disposition, political leaning, social status, sins, or scent, I am dealing with the image of the divine. Hence, justice for all, not just for those who can articulate their need for it, or pay for it, or return the favor down the road. Why help the weak? Because it's an act of worship. Worship, and I love our praise team up here, but worship is not merely an act of singing songs to God. It's a lifestyle of obedience and service to him. The purest form of worship is obedience. And obedience to God reveals to the world around us who God is. True worship is the best form of evangelism. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. God says this about people's acts of worship, people who are fasting, saying, I'm doing this for you, Lord. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself From your own flesh. The fast that God has chosen, the act of worship that God has chosen, is an important aspect of the set apart lifestyle. Saying, if you want to worship with me, you need to share your bread with those who don't have it, you need to open your home. When Jesus says, bear one another's burdens, I do not see a qualifier in that statement where he says, unless it inconveniences your lifestyle or causes you to change the way that you do things. And I'm not saying that to condemn. I'm telling you, man, I've been dealing with this. Jesus echoes this in Mark 12, 38 and 40 when he says, beware of the scribes, people who knew the Bible really well and liked that they knew the Bible really well. He said, Beware of the scribes who, go, or who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places the feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. We don't know how they were devouring widows' houses, but they were a part of a system that was allowing it to take place. And Jesus says they're going to receive the greater condemnation. Timothy Keller says this, Behind their excessive religious observances are lives that are insensitive to the vulnerable classes. In Jesus' view, this revealed that they did not know God or his grace at all. Like Isaiah, Jesus taught that a lack of concern for the poor is not a minor lapse, but reveals that something is seriously wrong with one's spiritual compass, the heart. Bible commentator Joel Green says this, the disposition of one's possessions signifies the dispositions of one's heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know what's important to you? Look at what you do with money and you'll know who your God is. Let me say that to you again. Look at what you do with money and you will know who your God is. Jeremiah 22.3, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the immigrant, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. Proverbs one eight in the NIV says this. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Israel as a nation was charged with creating a culture of social justice to the poor the fatherless the widow and the immigrant in doing so the world would have seen a proper representation of God's character and concerns you can go through in your own time and see the things that God had in place to make sure that the poor were cared for that there was no oppression taking place that the justice or that the judges were just we don't have time to get into all of that But in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, it says, Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of all of the peoples who will hear the statues, and they will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding as a people. For what great nation is there that God has so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call on him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments? as are in all this law, which I set before you this day. What God's saying is when you treat the poor this way, when you defend the fatherless this way, when you care for the widow this way, when you look out for the refugee this way, people will see it and they will know who I am because of it. That's an act of worship. That is not something to be taken lightly. Why is the church so ineffective in the world? It's because we're not being the church. We're picking and choosing what we think is important. Do you know how many sins I came across in here that we talk about all the time that is just a tiny portion compared to what God says about this? The church should be leading the way. Let me rephrase that. I should be leading the way. You should be leading the way. Doing justice from an attitude of love and mercy is an act of worship. You're doing it for God. Why help the weak? Because helping the weak, poor, oppressed is the same as helping Jesus. In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, we see, This final scene of judgment. It's known as the sheep and the goats. And Jesus goes through this whole list. Keith Green had a song about it that I cannot read this scripture without thinking of. I had a cousin in Leavenworth once that Keith Green, go look it up. Never mind, it's old, but that dude was the best. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Jesus talks about, I was hungry, I was thirsty. I was a stranger, a foreigner, a refugee, a different culture than yours. I was naked. I was in prison. I was sick. And Jesus lays this out. And to the group on his right, he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison, I was sick, you visited me. And hear what he says in verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, in as much as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When I treat the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the needy, the weak, the fatherless, man, is there a lot of that? The widow, the sick, the elderly. When I treat them with mishpat, with chesed, as much as you did it to them, you did it to me. But then he turns to those on his left and he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger I was naked. I was in prison. I was sick. You didn't visit? And in verse 45, then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. Both groups had questions for him, but the line of demarcation was drawn by what they did or didn't do So that's why you enjoying this night nice light message It's comfortable, right? I think we have a pretty clear understanding of who we're supposed to help. I think we have a pretty clear understanding in scripture of why we're supposed to help them, if nothing else, because you're doing it for Jesus. Like That, that should be enough on its own. How do I help? Whew. This one, hear my heart. It's going to get a little uncomfortable. I'm starting here. If I want to answer the question, how can I help? Then I must first ask the question, how do I contribute? And let me be clear, I don't mean how do I contribute by paying into something, I mean how am I part of the problem? How am I contributing to what's happening? I hear statements that are ignorant. And those who make them would say, well, I'm not ignorant. But it's rare to meet somebody who's ignorant and understands that they are. But people who say, I I never owned slaves. Hear me on this. I can stand before you and to the best of my knowledge, neither did my ancestors. They kind of came over after that. And I just got to ask the question because that's always a statement that wants to separate And cause more distance. Do you realize that racism started at the Tower of Babel. When pride and personal achievement and glory got in the way with what God wanted. And so that's when the races were divided. I know you don't mean it this way if you make that statement. I know you're not trying to be. But it's a proud statement. And let me ask you this question. And I say this in love. And again, I'm starting here. What difference does it make? And and does that mean that it never happened? Does it mean that no one was affected? Does it mean that systems were never put in place intentionally or unintentionally? What difference does it make that have had a trickle-down effect? Can you really stand there and say that there are no systemic causes to poverty? Because I'm going to tell you, I've spent the last week studying this And I find the Bible to be remarkably balanced in the causes of poverty. And it's oppression is one of them, which becomes systemic over time. There's also things that nobody's responsible for. Life circumstance, natural disasters, things that just happen. And then, yes, there's this other side of indolence or laziness, lack of action. Proverbs has a lot to say about that. The Bible is very balanced. But to make the statement, well, I don't think it's systemic, what you're doing is you're drawing a line and saying, I'm not willing to discuss or to help. And I don't think you mean to. I don't. I really believe that it's with the best of intentions, but I need you to know it's ignorant. Let me put it in an easier way to understand. Can I stand before God and say, I never contributed, so it wasn't my responsibility? Let me ask you this. Did Jesus ever sin? Yet he came and provided the solution for my sin problem. Did Jesus ever cause suffering? Yet he suffered personally personally, To ease mine? Did Jesus owe me anything? Yet he paid my debts. The situation I find myself in, sin wise, is on two accounts. One, Adam. There is an inherited sin. I had no control over what Adam did, and yet. I find myself surrounded by the results of his decision. And I had no control over that. I was born into that. On the other side of that, I've made decisions that have contributed to it. Systemic and personal responsibility. You can't separate them. And yet Jesus, who had nothing to do with this one, And nothing to do with this one. Came and said I'll provide the solution to both of them. Romans tells us that through one man sin and death entered the world. And through one man forgiveness and a way home. If Jesus left the comfort of heaven to carry my burden. Doesn't he require the same for me? Doesn't Acts 20.35, the Apostle Paul say, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this. Didn't he demonstrate? In Micah 6.8, which I've lost in my notes, he says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. I don't get to sit here and say, I didn't contribute. It's not my fault. And absolve myself. And yet enjoy what Jesus did for me. Gang, it's not how it works. It's not how it works. In the same way that Jesus says, if you're not willing to forgive them, then your father in heaven won't forgive you because it reveals the heart. You don't understand what grace and mercy and forgiveness is. You don't realize what you've been forgiven from if you're not willing to forgive. It reveals the heart. In the same way, if I'm not willing to sacrifice and to give and to do justly, then it shows that I don't understand how far I was from God and what he gave up to save me. It's an act of worship. Galatians 6, two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That means sacrificing my comfort to elevate someone else. It means having a willingness to walk with people regardless of convenience and it means asking the question am I contributing? Now I'm going to do what every single person on the internet does and I'm going to take this to the biggest extreme possible to help illustrate a point. I am not making a statement about you. I'm just illustrating a point. Put down the pitchforks and the torches. (laughs) All right, let's all take a minute. Let's take the greatest social rights violation of our time. Let's talk about the death camps. In order for the death camps in the Holocaust to work, there were four groups of people that were operating in a system. Number one, the ones at the top who instituted and gave the orders. Number two, the guards and officials who carried out the orders at the camps. Number three, the civic leaders within Germany that knew what was happening but remained silent out of fear for themselves and to protect their families. Who, by the way, many of which went on to commit suicide afterwards because they were so racked with guilt over not doing anything. And four, the citizens who didn't know for certain but also didn't want to and just went about their business paying taxes and keeping their businesses and lives running, watching their neighbors disappear and be arrested and just paying into the system. It took all four groups to keep the system running. Do we recognize that? Let me put it in something a little more accessible for us. I read a story while I was studying of a car dealer, um, white businessman down in South Carolina, where there had been years of Jim Crow and all that stuff that goes along with it. And he ran his car dealerships just like anybody did. He had, here's the list price, but here's what you can really sell it for, and there was, there was some wiggle room in there, and it's part of the fun, right? You go and you negotiate and you haggle and all that, but on his own, this Christian man doing a study started looking at how are people at negotiating, and he found that men are far better negotiators than women. They enjoy the sport of it, whereas women will like a little bit. And then, you know, not every woman, but just as a demographic. And they found that, that African-American women tended to be even lower than everybody else. So it was white men, African-American men, white women, African-American women. And what this man realized is that his business model, though unintentional, certainly not a crime, certainly not trying to exploit people, he recognized that he was violating the principle of mishpat in the scriptures because these women weren't able, didn't have the tools available to them, and so they were paying more for cars than the wealthy who had the tools to negotiate. This was not a system that was in place maliciously. Nobody was trying that, but it doesn't change the fact that the widow and the fatherless and these people who make up a good portion of the quartet of the vulnerable were being taken advantage of. And so he changed his business practice. This is what we sell cars for. This is the price. There's no haggling on it. And now it's equal. Gang, that's Mishpat. He's not making more money off of that. He says it became like a neutral business decision. It really didn't have much impact one way or the other. To him, but to her, man, that opens doors. It creates opportunity. We got to ask the question, where am I contributing? If I'm buying a jacket that costs $175, but the girl in the sweatshop somewhere overseas making it is making 70 cents and can't afford to feed her family, I am a part of the system. I'm I'm just trying to buy a jacket. I'm not trying to be a part of the system, but I am. Gang, we can't claim ignorance. And I know it's huge. How do you how do you change something like that? Well, I think the first thing is to ask the question, where do I contribute? And the second thing is always what the scripture says, repent. Matthew 5.3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's an understanding that I can't do anything without God. I find if that's the understanding that I have, then it's easier for me to relate to the people that I otherwise wouldn't be able to. Repentance means, Lord, what do you want from me? I told you at the beginning of the sermon, I sat in my office and I said, God, I know I'm wrong. And I don't even know where. And I'll be honest, I don't know how to fix it. I told Pastor Pat this morning, he said, how's it going? I said, well, I have some very clear things to communicate. I don't know that I have any actual answers to give. But that's the Holy Spirit. Like, that's not my job anyway. The third thing you have to do is act. And sometimes that means getting past your worldview. Getting past my politics. My politics again, I'm not trying to be condemning here. I hope I'm not coming across that way. This is just what the Lord's dealing with with me. Timothy Keller in his book, Generous Justice says this, one of the main reasons we cannot fit the Bible's approach into a liberal or conservative economic model is the scriptures highly nuanced understanding of the causes of poverty. Liberal theorists believe that the root causes of poverty are always social forces beyond the control of the poor, such as racial prejudice, economic deprivation, joblessness, and other inequities. Conservative theories put the blame on the breakdown of the family, the loss of character qualities, such as self-control and discipline, and other habits and practices of the poor themselves. By contrast, the causes of poverty... As put forth in the Bible are remarkably balanced. The Bible gives a matrix of causes. One factor is oppression, which included a judicial system weighted in favor of the powerful, Leviticus 1915, or loans with excessive interest Exodus 22:25 through27, or unjustly low wages, Jeremiah 22:13 and James 5:1 through6. There are other factors, natural disasters being one of them. Another cause is what we could call personal moral failures, failures, such as indolence, which is an avoidance of activity or exertion or laziness, Proverbs 6, 6 through 7, and other problems with self-discipline, Proverbs 23, 21. Poverty, therefore, is seen in the Bible as a very complex phenomenon. Several factors are usually intertwined. That's the reality of it. So what do we do? I'm going to close with this. I'm going to invite the worship team back out. I don't have the answers for you. But I see three things that are necessary in their tears. Maybe tears as well, but they're certainly tears. Relief. Development and social reform relief development and social reform relief is what the good samaritan provided when he went to the man and gave physical protection and bandaged his wounds and subsidized his rent in the hotel i'm going to take care of your immediate needs we have to help people who have immediate needs This is homeless shelters. This is food and clothing services. This is free or low cost medical care. It's counseling services. It's home care for the elderly or for the sick. It's active legal aid. It's shelters for victims of domestic abuse and violence. Without relief, what happens to these people? It's why we call them the quartet of the vulnerable. It's because they're vulnerable, they're exposed. The problem of pain is one of the great arguments that the atheists use against Christianity. If God is so good, how is there so much suffering in the world? And we can talk about that and there's on an emotional level it sounds like a good argument, but when you actually break it down, it breaks down very quickly. But the reality is, if we were doing what God called us to do, there wouldn't be much of an emotional argument there. Gang, we have to provide relief. We have to provide relief. It's one of the things I love about Mission Share. Relief. But it's got to go beyond just, well, you can have a home for tonight or here's a meal. Because tomorrow they're in the same situation they were in today. And so development becomes the second part of this. This means giving an individual a family, or an entire community what they need to move beyond dependency on relief because that can happen. They can get caught in another system that just keeps them needing relief. We got to help them move beyond dependency on relief and into a condition of economic self-sufficiency. In the Old Testament, debts were canceled every seven years, giving the person the ability to start over. And when the debts were canceled, God instructed the one releasing them. You could sell yourself as a slave really to save yourself. And you worked for this person and they kind of took care of you. But at the end of seven years, they were to set you free. But they weren't just to set you free because you still you would have had nothing. And then you're in the same position you were. Now it's another seven years. God instructed in Deuteronomy 15 verses 13 and 14, the ones releasing them to give them the grain, the tools, and the resources that they needed for a new economic life. Help them get started. One of the things I love about Mission Share is the counseling that takes place, is the relationships that get built. We're going to help you with this. Every 49 years, all debts were forgiven and the lands were restored to the original borders, meaning everyone had in their life at least one giant chance to start over, which means if your dad made decisions that ruined it for your family, the year of Jubilee was going to come where you could start over and start fresh. Development today means not just helping someone with their temporary need, but helping them get what they need to be self-sufficient. This is not a quick one-off, be warm and be fed. This means doing life with people. Gang, what this is, is discipleship. It's saying, come into my home. It's businessmen saying, I will pay you what you need to support your children so that you can move forward. It's people making decisions they're going to take from what they have And give to those who need. Now, let me be clear this is not socialism. Socialism, we see it over and over. It's a broken system that will not work. You know why? Because it's forced upon people, and what it does is it puts a few decision makers in control. Socialism empowers corruption and oppression. What this is, this is discipleship. God, look what you've done for me. How can I serve others? This is loving God and loving people. It means developing education for marketable skills, business opportunities in their neighborhoods. Studies show that even the money that's funneled into the poor neighborhoods through social programs simply goes through people's hands and right back out into the wealthy communities. Through banks and bankers and landlords and privately owned hospitals, etc. And so the system keeps churning. Pastor Bob, I can't solve that. No, you can't. Which is why the third thing that's needed is social reform finding the systems that are contributing to the problems and revising or removing them. Finding and fighting corruption and oppression, refusing to protect people in positions that are more concerned with keeping their power than they are with helping those who are vulnerable. It means looking at where our dollars are going and if we're financially backing oppression. But here's the thing, this only happens if people in groups and communities come together. Problem with the church. We're too busy fighting each other. <laughs> and we're fighting to hold on to the territory that we have rather than advancing into the territory that God's saying, go and do. There are so many ways to get involved. I mean, there are so many ways to get involved. One of my favorites is the Affinity Orchard right around the corner here. It used to be called English Village. Kate Carbone for years has been running this after-school program where they just tutor these students. And for a year I went and the stuff that I would hear was heartbreaking. Kids that would say, well, this is what your mom does for a living and there's no argument because everybody knows it's true. Kids that are barely literate that are three blocks from where my children live. But Homework Club loves these kids. Oh, you should see them. They come walking in big smiles on their face hugs for people they get their name tagged, they sit down we work on homework and then there's games afterwards and there's always a snack and boy is that the hit but one thing those kids know is that they're loved mishpah do justly just said love mercy Humbly with your God. I'm confident that Kate would be willing to talk to you if you're interested in getting more involved. I am confident that Pastor Dan is willing to talk with you if Mission Share is a place that you want to get involved. And Pastor Pat's going to continue this series next week. I'm confident that he has some ideas. That man never has a shortage of ideas. I've never met anybody like him. It's amazing. Can we stand and can we sing together? And the reason I want to do this, it's very easy to take this and just leave it sitting right here in the sanctuary. The Bible talks about meditating. That's not that Eastern thing where you say, oh, what that is, is it's, it's considering Lord, where does this apply to me? Where does this fit in my life? As the team leads us in this song, can we just take a second and say, Lord, where does this apply to me? J.R. Tolkien says, little by little, one travels far. You don't need to do it all at once, but what's the step you can take today? What's the step you can take tomorrow? Let's pray to the Lord together.